Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And we've arrived at the last passage in this conspiracy-filled chapter, which in many ways serves as a good reminder of the Antichrist world in which we live. The greater majority of people on this planet, and there are roughly, I don't know what the count is up to now, 8 billion, reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and vehemently deny his lordship. Only by God's grace are we no longer one of them. And like the Apostle Paul and other believers, there was a time that we were. What is the difference between us and them? God graciously and mercifully unmasked the identity of his son. And we got to see him as Lord. And this really provides a foundation for us this morning as we continue our study in Mark. Today, Jesus exhorts his disciples to beware of something. And beware is a strong word that we see used in our our culture whenever it's warning us of extreme hazards or life-endangering circumstances. And to illustrate my point, I found some actual signs that you might, so they might see uh, how this is used in real life and how it warns us of dangers. And so here's the, the first one that I found. It's beware of high voltage. And we understand the premise behind that. If you were to touch high voltage, you could get electrocuted and die. And it looks like that sign has seen some better days as well, perhaps suffering from some high voltage. Let's go to the next one. This is a common one right here in California. Beware of rattlesnakes. See plenty of these signs at our local parks, regional parks, because they're, they're out there. And if you get bit by a rattlesnake, you can uh, suffer uh, the consequences of that, and in some instances die. How about our next one? Beware open pit, okay? So there are instances where you can actually fall into a pit and get trapped in a pit, or worse yet, if it's filled with water, you can end up drowning in a pit. Perhaps, Matt, you might want to ask your work to, yeah. It's an inside, inside story, but he fell through the floor at work, and so didn't really know there was an open pit there. All right, here's one that's more common in Florida. Beware of alligators. This always makes me think about the Disney Resort and the, the, the two-year-old uh, that was out on the beach and was, was captured and killed by an alligator. The, ber- the word beware translates across all cultures. And notice this next sign. Now, I can't even read Chinese, but I know what this sign says, right? And if you start on the right and go to the left and work your way down, don't forget to feed the dog. That's what it says, okay? <laughs> no, I don't know what it says. Uh, I'm pretty sure the word beware is in there somewhere, though, Okay. We all know the danger of, of mean dogs, yet I think most parents will be able to relate to the next sign even more. Forget the dog, beware of the kids. I know I need this one at our house. <laughs> um, all joking aside, the word beware is, is used uh, to amplify a level of seriousness that warrants our attention. We get that, right? It's to, to help us see something that is dangerous. 
Well, if this is true of the physical hazards in our culture, then how much more so if our sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing Lord summons us to beware of a spiritual danger? I think we better pay close attention to that one. Let's review our context in Mark 12. Jesus has just been confronted by the entire religious establishment. They were out for his blood. When they saw that Jesus totally disrupted the business of the temple, uh, this took place the day before, they were furious. And this is Wednesday of Passion Week, just two days before Jesus' mock trial and crucifixion. And Jesus is exposing and condemning their mockery of temple worship. The religious leaders came and they asked him directly, by what authority are you doing and teaching these things? And Jesus revealed their hypocrisy by responding, I will tell you, if you can tell me, by what authority did John the Baptist teach? Was his baptism from men or from God? And all they could say is, we don't know. After this total failure, they took a three-pronged approach, a three-pronged attack against Jesus. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who came with their trick question as it related to taxes and asked if it was lawful to pay Caesar taxes. Jesus had the brilliant response, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God's. That was easy enough for him to shut down. Then the Sadducees come with a ridiculous question related to a woman who would have seven husbands if she died, and they ask about the resurrection, and Jesus again put them in their place. Finally, a bold scribe came to Jesus with a theological question. What is the greatest commandment of all? And once again, Jesus showed that he was the teacher, not the student. And after all these questions were exhausted, we saw last week that Jesus goes ahead and he turns the table now. It's his time. He's going to, let me ask you some questions. And he asked the religious leaders of Israel one question about the Messiah from Psalm 110. One simple point was made. How is it possible that the scribes say that the Messiah will be a son of David, yet in Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah, my Lord? This exposed their identity crisis because they failed to recognize Jesus as Lord. And we concluded that the identity crisis isn't the Lord's. His his identity has been well established for all eternity past and will be for all eternity future. The identity crisis is a result of sin. And it's our problem. We must find our identity in Christ in order to enter the kingdom of God, which Israel's leaders failed to do. Now, in ironic fashion, Jesus is going to expose their false identity and warn us of their damning influence in Mark 12 in verses 38 through 44. Let's read them together, starting in verse 38. In his teaching, he, Jesus, was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. 
And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Our study in Mark 12, 38 through 44, provides two warnings as Jesus exposes the leaders of Israel's hypocrisy so that we see the danger of promoting an identity outside of Christ and also understand why they're going to receive a greater condemnation. You heard that correctly. There is a hotter place in hell reserved for hypocritical, false religious teachers and leaders. Those who not only reject the true identity of Christ, but also point people to a false or a pseudo-identity, and then lead other people to do the same. Jesus affirms this at the end of verse 40, which is why I opted to, to title this message, Recipients of a Greater Condemnation. To deny Christ's identity is to deny the gospel. And as your outline states, Jesus offers us two warnings about religious false teachers and their hypocrisy. The first warning is this, beware of their religious deception. And here we're going to take a closer look at the deceptive images and then the deceptive practices. Let's start with the deceptive images that Jesus discloses in verse 38 and 39 when he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. The first thing to notice here is that Jesus is no longer speaking to the scribes the Pharisees or Sadducees. He is now addressing the crowd that has gathered in the temple courtyard. And this would be no small crowd. Why? Because we're two days away from Passover. So there are plenty of people who would arrive early. They would want to get their animal sacrifices in order. They would want to exchange their currency. They would want to be cleaned up and they would want to be prepared for Passover. And Jesus has this to say. Beware of the scribes. As many of you already know, the scribes were the official students and interpreters of the law. And someone once widely said, they were the ones who made the rules, the Pharisees were the ones who kept the rules, and the Sadducees were the ones who bent the rules. And that's really a good description of who they are or who they tried to be. The scribes were said to have succeeded from Ezra the scribe in the Old Testament, and there were very famous scribes that uh, populated the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel, right? The Apostle Paul uh, was instructed by him. And then we have Hillel and Shammai, who both had their own schools of scribery. When Jesus says, beware of the scribes, he then goes on to describe the deceptive religious image that they try to promote. They like to be exalted. And according to Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And there are a couple different ways they promote their deceptive image that Jesus refers to here, which I've labeled robes and recognition. 
robes obviously associated with their dress among the people and recognition, how they interacted and what they expected from the people. First, robes, according to verse 38. They like to walk around in long robes. Stole in the Greek, translated long robes, which refers to clothing worn by priests and probably an imitation of the priests by religious men, especially on religious occasions. The scribes like to walk around in these long robes to draw attention to themselves so that they would be associated with the religious establishment of the temple. And the whole point of a robe is to attract attention. And as we read in Psalm 132, which was a scripture reading that Ben read, 132.9, that it called them to be clothed with righteousness, right? To be clothed with righteousness. What is our takeaway from this? There's no such thing as sanctified clothing. This false image connected to the external traditions of legalism can tempt someone to think that they are somehow dressed more appropriately than someone else. Even at church. Imagine that. Can you imagine that happening? Have you ever judged someone because of their casual attire at church? Or maybe you're someone who judges others who dress up. Maybe you can have a, a heart to be critical of someone who you believe is wearing immodest clothing. Remember, our righteousness is in Christ, not in our robes. And this is one way the religious hypocrites leading Israel promoted legalism and a deceitful religious image. The other R word and portrayal of deceptive images comes through recognition. According to Jesus in verse 38, they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And these were no ordinary greetings like, hey, how are you? This was, these were deferential uh, greetings that um, deferred to their religious authority. The custom was that those of a lower rank were expected to greet those of a higher rank. A person must greet and recognize the one who is greater than he in knowledge of the Torah. And it was intended to be a simple way to show honor. Those of you who have served in our U.S. military understand this perfectly. As you walk around a military base and you see an officer higher in rank, what were you called to do? You salute them, right? Simple way just to show them honor. Now imagine if an officer intentionally walked around that military base not to go anywhere, but just to walk around intentionally to make people salute him. This is exactly what they were doing in, in, in their robes and trying to seek recognition. They wanted to be saluted. They wanted to be known for their religious rank. Believers know that when Jesus is Lord, it's about his recognition, not ours. It's why the Proverbs warn us regularly of the deceptive nature of pride and, being, and having an inflated view of self. And it's not about our position, it's about our posture. The way down is the way up. And I've asked the question, 
in, in the past, and I think it's a good one, how low can we grow, right? That's the, that's the goal, is to continue to grow in humility. How low can we grow? And when we cultivate true humility, this safeguards our hearts from the need to be recognized. Humility shines the spotlight on Christ as we direct the glory that men try to give us back to the Lord. Do you serve the Lord to get recognized and esteemed by people? Pride and hypocrisy will tempt you to do so. And we, we need to ask ourselves these questions regularly. Am I serving to please the Lord or am, or am I seeking the recognition of others? And if it's the latter, we need to repent. Right? We're, 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 we are serving him. And yes, we do that by serving each other. But ultimately, we're, 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 we're seeking his recognition. Anything that pulls us away from that is dangerous. Well, there's another way the religious leaders sought recognition by promoting a deceptive image that Jesus discloses in verse 39. They like the choice seats in the synagogues and places of honor. These were reserved seats for dignitaries and honored guests, and they were also reserved seats for scribes and for scholars. And the same was true at Jewish banquets, where people were seated according to their age or according to their importance. For example, when there were two couches at the banquets and their furniture was just slightly different than ours, as we think of a traditional banquet, the person higher, older person, or the person um, who had more importance would be seated on the couch, uh, the first couch, at, at the, the first available seat on that couch. And those who were lower in rank or in age would be seated accordingly below them. So why do you think Jesus is addressing this issue? I mean, really, in the end, does he care about where they sit? And after all, these are seats that were reserved for them. So technically, this should be a non-issue. It wasn't their seats. And it was their attitude of entitlement and desire for recognition that Jesus is addressing. They have what I like to call a first-class attitude. Those of you who have flown on an airplane know that when you come in at the entrance, typically you have to walk through the first-class cabin to get to a seat and coach unless you're flying first class. And I'll be the first to admit, when I walk through, it's hard not to covet those large seats, being a bigger guy, and all the amenities that come with them, right? But it also comes with a pretty hefty price tag. And I always enjoy watching the people who look like they're flying first class for the first time, especially kids, right? They're just like looking around, wide open space, You've got the nice big screen in front of them, and they're just like, wow, this is amazing. And then you have the other kind of people, the high class attitude people. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
So Victoria and I, we were flying back to Chicago with the kids, and we are always last aboard. It's our little trick because we just like our, we let our kids run around in the airport trying to exhaust themselves before they're held hostage to their seat for the next few hours. And it, it's a good idea for parents with, with children. Let them get it out because they are going to be buckled in, especially if there's turbulence, and then they can't unbuckle. All right? Well, we were boarding the plane, and we were walking through the first-class cabin, and we were last, and the line was ahead of us. And we're standing literally right in the middle of the first-class cabin. And there was this guy who was reading his newspaper, and he kept shuffling his newspaper and rolling his eyes. He was like, oh. And he was not happy that we were standing there. And you could literally feel, I'm not kidding you, you could literally feel his attitude. You could, you could sense his heart screaming. On with these pagans. On with these pagans. Please get him back to coach with the rest of the animals. Please. You know, I don't know if he had a British accent either. I didn't even hear him talk. He was reading his paper. But you get what I'm saying. There's this proper self-righteousness that was asserted. His first-class seat impacted his attitude. And the same was true with the religious leaders of Israel. It caused them to feel superior and to look down upon those who they believed were less important, or so they thought. The deceptive image that they promoted led to an inflated and elevated view of themselves. They wanted to draw attention to themselves in every case. They wanted to be noticed for their dress, respected for their knowledge, greeted by everyone, especially important people, and to be members of the in crowd. This was their compelling desire, and our passage indicates that in the first. They, they, they wanted to be, they liked this. They desired this. Thankfully, thankfully, none of us ever want to be noticed for how we dress respected for our knowledge, or be recognized as important. Of course, I'm being facetious. Like the religious leaders, we also can be tempted in the same way. And Jesus wants us to see this deception when we're living for our own image and for our own identity instead of his. This is our takeaway. It leads to worldliness, not worship. Here are two good questions for us to ask ourselves. Number one, in what ways am I obsessed about my own image and identity? Think about that question. Reflect on that question. Number two, in what ways am I obsessed about my identity in Christ? Meditate on that. All of life right, can, can be filtered through the lens of those two questions as it relates to who we are on this planet and why we're here, right? And what image am I putting forth? What identity am I, am I trying to get people to recognize me for? And this leads to very practical questions. Do I spend more time at the, the gym exercising my physical muscles more than I do my spiritual muscles by studying the word of God? 
Do I spend more time in front of the mirror on, on my makeup or on my hair? Right? I don't have any hair, right? You get to see that. I'm referring to other people. Right? We can be so focused on the external identity, can't we? When there's an internal reality and identity that is supposed to bleed through all of that so that the world sees us as salt and light. So that they see a difference in us. Do I spend more time promoting my own name rather than the name of Christ? And again, I'm not asking you. I got beat up just even putting these questions down on paper and, and looking at it myself. It's not to lay some guilt trip. I'm just talking about just a practical way that we can just put these questions before us and, and help it, uh, use them to, to help us um, see and identify ways we might need to change, right? Things we might need to see. Do I really see myself? Then I'm going to spend time meditating in the mirror of Scripture to see who I am with Christ and who I am certainly without him. Not only does Jesus want us to beware of the deceptive religious images they promoted, but this also opened the door for their deceptive practices. Look again at verse 40 as Jesus goes on to describe the religious leaders of Israel as those who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. Here Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by exposing their love of money. After pride, their priority was based entirely on wealth, and they didn't care who they had to climb over in order to get it. Hypocrisy and vain recognition were one thing, but ruining and impoverishing even those who were most vulnerable in society was quite another. And you might be curious as to how they devoured the estates of widows. Exactly what was involved in, in this process is uncertain. The scribes were forbidden to receive payment for teaching and assistance. They had to support themselves by having another job, uh, do, doing some form of secular work. And because they were legal experts, it would make sense that people would come to them for legal counsel. Again, they could, not re, they, they could receive payment that was disassociated away from the temple. That was okay. Or they had to be dependent upon gifts. Some may have ingratiated themselves to widows in hopes of being willed their houses. Or they may have found technicalities in the law whereby they could lay claim to the houses of defenseless persons such as widows. We do know they acted in the capacity of lawyers and many believe the scribes would cheat widows out of their estates by purposely mismanaging their, their, their funds and cheat them out that way. Or they would also lend money and charge interest and make it so that it was, would be an impossible, impossible debt that could be paid back. They took advantage of him. Jewish historian Josephus tells of a Jewish scoundrel exiled to Rome who affected the ways of a scribe. Quote, he played the part of an interpreter of the Mosaic law and its wisdom. 
end quote, and succeeded in persuading a high-standing woman named Fulvia to make substantial gifts to the temple in Jerusalem. The requests, however, were embezzled, and Rome, from Emperor Tiberius onto plebes in the street, were outraged when they heard of this. Such incidents may lie behind the charge of devouring widows' houses. Mark's Roman readers, to whom the Fulvial Fulvia scandal was a recent memory, provided a special frame of reference for the predatory greed of the scribes. End quote. That was James Edwards, so there was a quote within a quote. We didn't, we didn't exactly define that. Josephus and James Edwards. So, just speaking candidly, this was a practice that we might see in the world. That we would expect from the world. But this was taking place with the leaders of Israel. And when pagans are the ones calling you out for your deceptive practices, then there's something really going on. Something really wrong. This is the level of deception that existed, and Jesus calls them out on it. Scripture tells us to be free from the love of money, which leads to all sorts of evil. And when it comes to God's leaders and his people, we cannot and we must not compromise our integrity. The scribes willingly compromise their integrity for the sake of wealth. But there's no scribes here today. I don't believe so. Right? It's just us, right? How about you and I? Are there any ways that we're currently compromising our integrity? Does money have a greater hold on our heart than we would dare admit? Are you manipulating financial situations so that it works to benefit you somehow in a deceptive way? Hear it. Repent of it. And, this is, and it is hypocrisy. Don't be, don't, don't be discovered by someone in the world and have them get, call you out just like the Romans had to do with the leaders of Israel. Honor the Lord with your finances. Pay what you owe. Deduct what you are supposed to deduct. Walk the fine line. Put him on display with how you, you handle your finances. And I don't, I'm speaking to the choir after um, we just had a, a great financial weekend together with Jim Rickard, who wants us and encourages us to be good financial stewards. The last practice mentioned in verse 40 was perhaps the most de- devious. Scribes would pray long prayers for widows for appearance sake, And then widows would pay them for their spiritual work. So the scribes would do anything to get money. They were not paid for their scribal service in the temple, as I already mentioned. And they had to keep up with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Greed dominated the temple. And the whole thing really was a racket. We've learned about this in in past teachings going through Mark's gospel. Perhaps what is most interesting here is that this deceitful practice involves sinning against widows. Think about this. 
Jesus could have chosen any number of their sins to identify, but he specifically highlights the fact that they devour widows' homes. Why would he mention this? The answer was and is very specific because it relates to God's view of widows throughout the Old Testament. Exodus twenty two twenty two: You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Isaiah 10, 2, God will judge Judah for making widows their spoil. Malachi 3, 5, Messiah will judge those who oppress widows. And we see such passages even bleeding over into the New Testament. As James, the author James, who wrote his epistle to the 12 tribes who were dispersed because of persecution, he described pure and undefiled Religion to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27. And the scribes were stained by the world. And we don't want to be. We don't want to be. Truly don't. Widows were generally combined with orphans and the fatherless meaning people who were helpless. If a woman became widowed and her father was still alive, she could go back to him for help. But generally, when women became widows, especially due to age, their parents were already deceased. And unless her deceased husband had a brother, she was helpless. So what does God do? He graciously and mercifully put in many regulations and expectations for Israel to be a social safety net for widows and orphans. God is viewed as their protector. All widows and orphans were guaranteed to eat at Israel's feasts, knowing that they could not provide for themselves. They were a protected class. And with all this clearly seen, the scribes who knew the scriptures better than anyone better than anyone, took advantage of these vulnerable and desperate women. How does that make your heart want to respond toward them? I think it helps us understand the, the, the next words that come in verse 40 very well, that the way Jesus responded, these will receive a greater condemnation. One misconception that many people have and believe is that all judgment is the same, that the wrath of God is the same for all people. And this is wrong. God's word does speak of harsher judgment. For example, in Matthew eleven twenty through 24, Jesus shares that the people from Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum will suffer greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. In Hebrews 10, 29, the author of Hebrews writes, How much severe punishment do you think the person will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And in that context, it is referencing those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, proving themselves as unbelievers. And this would certainly apply to the deceptive and hypocritical leaders of Israel. And this is why the eternal lake of fire was prepared for Satan 
and his angels. Satan, the beast and false prophet of Revelation, and the demons, they'll go straight to this lake of fire because they have rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ and refused to honor God as he says. And they did this with full and complete knowledge. And the scribes likewise have a very comprehensive knowledge because they're scribes. Their job was to know the law. They are to study and pursue the truth. They are grammar experts. They are to know God's commands. And yet their lives were plagued with hypocrisy and unbelief. And further validation, this is a further validation of why we see them reject Jesus Christ as Messiah, which again is only going to warrant greater judgment for them. I was just on a personal note, and I, and I feel the weight of this every week as I stand up here studying the scriptures, trying to rightly divide them, right? Making sure that as it relates to the, the, the gospel, as it relates to God's word, that, that, that it's handled with precision. And this is, this is, a, this is a protected space, isn't it? This is, this is a significant place in our church. And whoever stands behind here, you have an elder team that is committed, that whoever stands behind this pulpit and proclaims the word of truth is going to do all that they can to handle God's word with precision and preach the gospel with clarity. And this is exactly why James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers. That's a reference to spiritual teachers because you'll incur a stricter judgment. It's true. It's true. And by the way, Jesus' warning in Mark's account is the shorter G-rated version compared to the parallel account that we find in Matthew 23, written predominantly to a Jewish audience. Mark gives us the newspaper version. He gives us three verses. But in Matthew 23, it's almost the entire chapter. It spells out, and it has the infamous eight woes that Jesus gives to the scribes. We will reference that passage under our second warning, which we'll cover next Sunday. The religious leaders of Israel were so entrenched in their self-righteousness and hypocrisy and the system of legalism that they lost sight of God's righteousness. And again, there are no scribes here today. But it is still possible for one of us to possess, any one of us, to possess the same attitudes that controlled these men. Everything they did was geared towards satisfying their pride and making themselves look good in the eyes of others. They were literally in love with themselves, and they had no room for God in their hearts. They lost sight of Old Testament passages reminding them of their own depravity without the Lord. Psalm 16, one of my favorites. Verses 1 and 2 says this, a psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are the Lord, and I have no good Besides you. Psalm 16, 1 and 2. A prayer. A reality that David wrote of his life. One that they completely missed. 
One that we cannot, friends, we cannot afford to miss and cling to that reality and pray that prayer regularly. Preserve me, O God, for my refuge is in you. I don't have any good besides you. And I don't. And I know you don't either. And that's why I let him who boasts, we're going to get up and we're going to boast about the Lord and what he's done for us Sunday after Sunday. And it's not going to get old. And we're going to sing that song for all of eternity. They served a self-righteous identity, not the Lord's. And at the beginning of this message, I showed you several signs that should capture our attention and cause us to be concerned walking around in the culture in which we live. But none of those signs and the hazards that they reflected come close to the warning that Jesus shares right here in Mark 12. I wish there was a way to make it electric. I wish there was a way from your Bible to, to take a, uh, an extension cord and plug it into the wall and to see the flashing sign over and over and what he was trying to show. It was like a big neon sign flashing in the temple courtyard. Beware of the religious hypocrites. Beware of the religious hypocrites. Beware of the religious hypocrites. Over and over. Beware of looking up to them. Beware of following their hypocritical patterns. Beware of becoming like them and cultivating a religious identity outside of Christ. The scribes and everyone who knowingly follows their example will be recipients of a greater condemnation and will be subject to a judgment reserved for Satan and his angels, which leads us to our second warning. Warning number one, beware of their religious deception. Warning number two, beware of their damning influence. And next Sunday, we're going to have the opportunity to cover the much debated verses of 41 through 44 and to interpret those correctly as Jesus observes a widow and her offering at the temple. It has nothing to do with money, by the way, so you won't want to miss it. Pray with me. Gracious God, we pray as a church family again, and what a privilege to end in which the same way that we started, completely and utterly dependent upon you. You are the giver of spiritual life. The hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ serves as an anchor to our soul. And apart from him, we have nothing. We have no independent righteousness. The world may believe that there is some righteousness that they can cling to. But even that is a result of the conscience and the moral law that you've inscribed on the heart of every human being that governs them and yet they take credit for it. We have no good. We're completely and utterly depraved. Only if you intervene can we be restored. And so, Father, I pray that if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, who does not have an identity in Christ, that you would lead them to repent of their unbelief and to trust completely in your son, Jesus Christ, by calling out to him, asking for forgiveness of their sins and committing all of the remainder of their days to living for his glory. Father, don't let anyone leave here without knowing 
the true identity of your son. And then allowing that to have an incredible impact upon us. In many ways, this passage is pointing us back to last week and the exhortations that we heard there. It's all about you. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Father, as we continue to live for your glory, help us to see the ways that we need to die more to self and die to the image and identity that we might be trying to live for outside of Christ. And help us get direction. Help us get discipleship. Help us lean on other believers in our care group and battle and fight the good fight of faith so that we can live for your glory and put you on display. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to rally around your word yet again. And we pray that you'll also bless second hour as we continue to study our fear of you. We thank you again for blessing us this morning. We pray all this in the name of your son. Amen.